Well, welcome to this week's edition of the Wispy Mob Music Acoustic Radio Podcast Series. I'm your host, Todd, middle initial C. Walker. Yes, that's right, it's me. And we are listening to music by Jason Shaw. Jason Shaw does a nice thing for podcasters like myself and people who have low-budget films where they need music. He produces royalty-free music. You can find it at audionautics.com. And you can listen to the different genres, decide what you want, download it. But I would ask you to donate to him since he spends the time to put it all together. But that's not the reason for the show today. The reason for the show is I am going to be chatting with a good friend of mine who happens to be one of the most popular performers, performer slash entertainers in the greater Frederick, Maryland area. Um, Whether it's a coffee shop or a brewery or you name it, outdoor concert, Michael Scherf is one of the most requested and he's on the telephone with me right now michael how are you i'm doing fine how are you today todd i'm doing well thank you so much for joining me it's my pleasure so tell me go way 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 back to when you first got interested in music and how did it happen how did it happen well i'm a native of the mid-atlantic area and i uh I grew up right outside of D.C. in a little place called Riverdale, not to be confused with Archie and his gang, which was outside of New York. Um, But Riverdale, Maryland's down around College Park, Hyattsville. And at about the age of nine, I had some friends down the street. Uh, In fact, it was my best friend at the time. His name was, was Bob. His older brother started playing guitar. And um, we just thought that was the neatest thing in the world. So I'd sit and watch, and I have my brother's old guitar. He he had bought an old, you, you'll remember this. You remember the old Sears Silvertones? Oh, of course. You'd be amazed how many people started on a Silvertone. Uh, you can add me to that group. It was one of the, um, the Silvertone acoustic F-holes. Aha. Uh-huh. <clears throat> and... Um, I, I, I had trouble pressing the strings down on it, so I, I did what so many of us did back in that era as I put the silk and steel strings on it because they were the easiest to play. And I learned three chords, and I just thought I was, I was the, um, the hottest thing around because I learned how to play an F chord, and you had to hold two strings down with one finger. <laughs> I remember that. <laughs> You remember that? Sure. That was the <clears throat> toughest one for me. So, uh, yeah, it was the toughest one for all of us, you know. He'd show that chord to me and say, two strings, one finger? How do you do that? Well, fortunately, I'm um, the tips of my fingers are uh, double-jointed. So... <laughs> so you can get a good bend. Oh, I, yeah, I do a lot of those uh, multiple strings with uh, with one finger. Uh, You've watched me play. That's when I do my A form bar chords. It's all with my pinky, and I just lay one finger across there. But uh, yeah, that's how it all got started, and we started doing uh, Peter, Paul, and Mary. And of course, that was the time the Beatles hit, and we would play along to the records. And over the course of a couple of years, the records started disappearing, and uh, we were actually playing. And from there, that's when the guitar masses started at the Catholic Church. 
and guitars in church became very popular. And uh, we actually became the group in the area that uh, would go around to the various churches and show people how to get them started. Oh. So, yeah, they, uh, we were informally referred to as the God Squad. Of course, you remember the time period this I was. Do. I do. Yeah. So it was a takeoff on the TV show. So, yeah, that's how I got started and from church to coffee houses. And, uh, now, was your, your family musical? No. In fact, I have two sisters who are absolutely tone deaf. <laughs> now, one of your parents must have been musical, as far as singing, at least, I would imagine. <clears throat> well, my mother always said it was my father. I never saw it. Um, but it's funny you should mention that. My mother passed away last year. And uh, we were reminiscing over some old things. And in my college years, because I lived at home in college, um, I'd be the only one home and she'd be working around the house and she started singing. She'd put the records on and start singing with them. My mother had a beautiful voice. And in fact, after I started um, playing out professionally, she she confided in me that that was always her dream was to be a singer with a big band, but she never had the nerve to do it in front of anybody. Oh, now did she ever um, sing with you? No, no, she never sang with anybody. And if she knew I had been listening as closely as I was, she probably would have shut up. <laughs> <laughs> now, what was her favorite style of music or, or did she, she just love all music? Well, she loved all music, but she was from the big band era and she just, she loved big band music. And that's, um, that's basically the records I was brought up with in my house was, um, was old big band. And then the old crew, you actually, you actually referred to me after one of the, um, Christmas shows, you said, we have an authentic crooner. Yep. Um, that's because I was brought up on Frank Sinatra, Tony Bennett, Dean Martin, Jack Jones, um, a singer that not too many people remember, John Gary. I remember the name now that you mention it, but I, just barely. He had absolutely the most tremendous lyric tenor voice you have ever heard. You really should. For your own edification, you should go look up John Gary and listen to some of his music. Incredible voice. But those are the guys that I started out emulating. And I mean, we, I, was, uh, I was in the second grade, and I knew all the words to I Left My Heart. <laughs> <laughs> and knowing you, you were probably singing it to whoever stopped by the house, uh, because you're, you're somewhat of a ham in a good way. Um, actually, no, I was, I was kind of embarrassed to be, to be put on the spot. Um, I would sing it when I was by myself. Uh, in fact, I can remember the first time I played as a solo at a coffee house where nobody knew me. And you'll remember the days when, um, 
nobody had real band equipment, right. PA equipment. So they had uh, a riser stage, you know, with the, with the fold-up legs. And they had a microphone, two microphones, both of them plugged into a Fender reverb amp, twin reverb. Terrific for acoustic and vocals. Yeah, and you would uh, you would play your guitar through one, and you would sing through the other. And I think I knew all of. I was about fourteen years old. And I knew all of about uh, maybe a dozen songs. And of course, you know the way I learn a song. When I say I knew the song, I knew that dozen songs. I knew them well. But um, asking me to play anything beyond that, or to sit in with somebody, all you would ever get out of me was deer in the headlights. Sort of like. I still am. <laughs> well, I think you're a little better than that. I've, I've seen you perform with people. Um, now, was there a piano in your house? Or did... No. No? So it was, no. You're, you're the first one who was an instrumentalist, basically. I, I, my brother took six months of guitar lessons on the Silvertone guitar and decided he didn't want it and put it down. Now, what... I'm just curious. Was that a natural wood guitar or was that kind of like a um, emerald green or light green do you remember what color it was it was a sunburst it was Na natural wood dark to light sunburst that's cool you don't still have it by any chance do you no i sold it to one of my neighbors for five dollars and two weeks later he came down and um it's it's amazing at, at the age we were at the um, four-letter expletive vocabulary he had when he said he was sitting there and it broke off in his hands and the neck snapped off the body. Whoa. And I said, well, what did you do with it? <laughs> what did you do to it? He claimed he didn't do anything, but I'd say he probably busted it up in his room knowing him as, as I did. Well, but, uh, and, you know, even back then probably bet more so than subsequent years, the inexpensive guitars were actually fairly well made. So I doubt it just fell apart. Oh, pardon me. I took a drink of water. Um, yeah, I think you're right. So but, he, uh, he was looking for his five bucks back. Yeah. And I, I told him no returns. Um, <laughs> hey, you know, it worked fine. And like you said, they were actually built pretty sturdy. A lot of them, a lot of them were like, um, playing a two by four strung with barbed wire. That is true. But, <laughs> but you could, you could uh, play El Cabong with the guitar and, and they wouldn't break. But getting back to my, my first appearance. Yes. I knew I would not remember one song. So I wrote them all down on a sheet of paper. In fact, I borrowed my sister's typewriter and I typed them out. Always cutting edge technology with me. <laughs> and we'll get to that later. Yeah. So I, uh, I stumbled as I was getting up on the stage. And of course, it was a riser stage with a Fender Twin Reverb. So you can imagine the result. Yes. But explain um, to people who may never have used a Twin Reverb what would happen. Well, it's the same with um, now you get all of your reverb effects digitally. 
but it used to be there was a spring inside that would vibrate and would loop back through and that's where you would get your um your reverb from same thing with my first pa system the shore vocal master mm -hmm. uh, that had a spring reverb in it and if you weren't careful you could do it with this too but when you slam down on a riser stage and it jumped it was a reverb explosion <laughs> we used to do it on purpose not hitting it hard but <clears throat> yeah well i kind of i kind of hit it hard and it was at full performance volume when it happened well at least you got the audience's attention yeah well i would if i didn't get the attention then i would have gotten the attention with my next move which was I sat down in the chair and they lined up the microphone to my guitar and they put it up to my voice and I leaned back and I pulled out my sheet of paper with both hands and I was shaking so badly that all you heard in the microphone was rattling paper with reverb on it. <laughs> and we were allowed to do three songs and I saw one and I said, yeah, I can do that one. And I closed my eyes and I started playing. And when I finished, they applauded. Uh -huh. And I said, dang, you know, um, hang on for a second. That's sure. the house phone. I can, I can kill that. The beauties of modern technology and cell phones. Yeah. Well, that's, that's the house phone with, uh, two handsets in the room. <laughs> I gotcha. Uh, so they applauded and I was like, well, that was fun. Oh, will you shut it? Michael and I were discussing this before we actually hit the record button in about, he says, well, you can, you know, do things after the broadcast, you know, and, and edit. I said, Oh no, we do this live. No, we can't do that. <laughs> I'm a firm believer so, in realism. So anyway, well, that's about as real as it gets. Um, so the next two songs flowed out real well. And all of a sudden, you know, I was, cause my parents had to drop me off. I was 14 years old. I couldn't drive. I was looking up and making calls and finding out where every coffee house was after that. <laughs> now, was that in Riverdale or, or somewhere close by? That was in the Riverdale Hyattsville area. Yeah. In fact, uh, I think I was 16. Let me think about this. 69. Yeah, I was 16 years old when that neighborhood group that I was in at the time we we were we turned into a folk group called the Morning Dawn. That's a good name. Yeah, I thought it was at the time. And uh, his older brother, Bobby's older brother, actually wrote some really good songs. So we did we did originals, and um, we ended up playing two or three times at the Purple Moose Coffee House at Maryland University. Now that can be a really good crowd. It was, it was, and um, for a 16-year-old, it's an amazing crowd. We well, yeah, all, <laughs> all those college girls, absolutely. Yeah, and uh, so Paul, the older brother, walks up to me afterwards uh, at the last time we played there, and this guy had approached him, and he wanted us to play in an event that was being planned. 
because this was late 69. And uh, we got all excited about it. And the long story short was that it was um, a three-day event. And it was in the middle of nowhere, so they'd have to helicopter the axe in and out. And he was looking for Phil axe. Now, what year was this? That was in 69, and they were in the early stages of booking it. Uh-huh. And what might have been the name of the event? I don't even have to tell you. <laughs> yeah, and our parents told us that we were too young to go to something like that. Major bummer there. Well, you wouldn't, I mean, it would have been a major bummer because you couldn't do it, but you had no way of knowing the historical Absolutely significance. Absolutely no way of knowing the historical significance of it because they told us that they were going to pay us for three days for doing two acts a day, 15 minutes each, that we were going to get uh, transportation, room, board, transportation in and out, and walk out of there with $600. That was $200 a piece back then. Mm -hmm. Which was a lot of money. That was a lot of money. And it wasn't until probably a couple of years after the movie was released, because I never got to see the contract. I never got to see Woodstock on it. But then um, I called up Paul and he's like, yeah. <laughs> so, I mean, um, just the thought of that, Michael, is very cool. But can you imagine being able to go, getting there, and then realizing that this is huge? What and how old oh, were you then? I, would have had, I, I was 16 when we were talking about it, and uh, quite quite honestly, the the line that has stuck with me more than anything else was uh, in a Robin Williams concert when he was talking about Woodstock, and uh, he would say, "That's when you I first heard the line. If you remember it, you weren't really there." Mm -hmm. And uh, he said, yeah, Woodstock, I remember some of the best minds of my time turned to mud there. Yep. Yeah, so, you know, you don't know how it would have affected a 16-year-old kid. But the fact that but, you were, someone was willing to hire you to do it is a very cool thing. Yeah, but, you know, I always wondered how close he actually, it's a great story to tell. Oh, it's terrific. But you don't really know how close to the source he really was, you know. Um, but uh, it it's a good thing to think about, I almost, when in reality, yeah, there was no way I was ever going to get there. But just the thought of, of having an entry to it at one point. <laughs> but you're absolutely right. The, 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 even the thought of it is cool. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's, that's one of my... Uh, one of my claims to non-fame, I never played there. Well, you know, and I, I did not, you've never told me that story, so I am feeling much better about it. Well, then you just, uh, you just lived up to our conversation before the call. You're going to learn something about me you didn't know. That is correct. Now, I do have a question. Were you, you weren't still playing the silver tone at that time, though, were you? No, by that time, I had a guitar that I later, um, ruined at a swimming pool that I would love to have today because it would be worth a small fortune in and of its own. 
I purchased it from one of the priests uh, where we used it. And he said he paid $300 for it back in the mid-60s. It was a Goya classical concert guitar. Beautiful nylon string instrument. And something like that today, one of the original, I mean, real Goyas, not a knockoff, not right. one of the cheap Japanese ones later. This was this was a, a Goya Spanish guitar. Would love to have that today, but it's... Uh, it, it's um, long since bit, bit the dust, but that's what I was playing back at the time. Yeah, and for those younger people listening, Goya was actually, it wasn't a huge name in guitars in the United States because it came out of Europe, but it, it actually had a fairly good following in the United States because I lusted over, I, I saw someone playing a Goya one time, and so when I first got into buying and selling guitars back in the, early 2000s, I purchased a Goya. Unfortunately, it was one of the lesser expensive overseas ones, so it wasn't very good. But, yeah, I do remember them. Yeah, so that was the first uh, decent guitar that I had owned. And back then, you were playing, the guitars were always played into microphones. I would imagine, Mm -hmm. still, yeah. Yeah, they were. Yeah, they were. Wasn't wasn't until... uh, wasn't until I got into college and um, I got hired by a little local bar here in Frederick that I don't think any of your audience members would ever remember this. And you weren't around then because this was around 73. Mm -hmm. There was a bar out on Route 40 when it was still uh, one lane in each direction. Mm -hmm. Um, Just... Across the street from and towards 15, a little bit from where the Fredericktown Mall is, uh, there was a little country bar called the Club 40 West Restaurant and Lounge. And for the most part, it was a country bar. And I decided I wanted to play. I, I just went in there one day and asked him if they were looking for uh, for solo acts. By this time, I had 25, 30 songs in my repertoire. <laughs> and um, you can interject now if you want to give them my nickname that you gave me years ago. <laughs> oh, no, you, by all means, you, you tell everybody. Oh, Todd, Todd started introducing. He said the first time he ever saw me, he said I was surrounded by... Um, by music books on music stands, and he called me the man of a thousand songs. That is correct. Yep, it was at the coffee table in the community of Whittier. And That's right. we had gone to a wine tasting. There was a little market right next door, and the they were getting ready to shut down, and they said, oh, by the way, they're having music over at the uh, coffee table tonight. We said, well, let's go sit down and listen. And, and you were there. And yes, you sat behind what looked like huge speakers and you had two or three, what I remember two or three music stands with these big three ring binders. I'm thinking, man, that must be thousands of songs. You know, he, he, ladies and gentlemen, this man had a few too many tastings of the wine because I never worked with more than one music stand and one. Three <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, but that was the, all first, I that's what I remember. Whoever you were with, I hope they were driving. Yeah. <laughs> um, 
but yeah, and I, so I walked in and, um, of course I still had that nylon string guitar at the time and there was a band playing there because basically this was a country bar, uh, back, back then it was well known as a redneck bar mm-hmm. and, uh, the leader of the band was in there and he says, well, you want to try? And I pulled my guitar out and he set me up with a microphone and, you know, with one on my guitar. And I did four or five songs and they were standing there talking and I said, uh, can you draw much of a college crowd out here? So he says, well, I'm booked on through to September. He says, this was in June. He says, but if you want to come in in September, he says, uh, we'll start you then. And, uh, that was my first, now I've been paid for things before, but it wasn't, you know, like a bar or a restaurant or anything like that. It was just, you know, will you come out and do this for this function? Um, but this was the first time I stepped on a stage at planned booking for money and they were paying $40 a night. Well, when you think, and that was what year approximately? 73. Well, and now at most coffee houses, it's $50 a night or tips only. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> so there's inflation for you. That's a. That's, um, yeah. Now, now we all, we all fill that classic definition of a professional musician is someone who takes, uh, takes a thousand dollars worth of equipment, loads it into a $500 car and drives a hundred miles for a $50 game. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So now so they, you... started, they started me on Tuesdays and Thursdays. Drew quite a college crowd. And he ran bands on Wednesday, Friday, and Saturday. And I knew so little about the business i had no idea of what a compliment it was when they decided to run me three nights and my third night was their friday night bar crowd oh coming up coming up in the world by this time i went out and made the investment and had my first pa system which was the uh was the shore vocal master which was state of the art at the time. It was. It was my first PA as well. And uh, and I bought my first Ovation guitar. Now is that the um, the nylon string Ovation or a steel string? That was my second. I bought that one sixty days later. And they were both. One of them was the uh, was the Ovation artist, and the other one was the nylon string. Was actually referred to as the country artist. So I had matching guitars, one steel, one nylon. Look cool from the uh, the audience looking at the stage while you're playing one and the other one. See, it reminded people of Glenn Campbell, I'm sure. So you've often seen me playing with two guitars. I've been doing that since I really started. Most of the time I have two guitars with me. Mm-hmm. But the nylon string that you see me play today, that was my second guitar, and it only beat the first one by 60 days. But that's the same one that I was playing back in uh, 73, 74, and uh, that's how old it is, and I've been playing it ever since. 
Now, were those your main guitars right up until the time you purchased the Martin? And I'm looking at a photograph of you playing your Martin. And you were one of the early purchasers of the performance series that Martin brought out. And you have the what I call the upscale inlay have, on the headstock. Yeah, I have... Um, I had uh, in 86... I bought one of the um, electric custom legends mm -hmm. that had the thin body. That's the one that Doug May bought from me. Yes. Yeah. And then after that, for my 50th birthday, uh, and what you probably saw me playing the first time, was I have an Ovation 30th anniversary elite guitar which is the real deep body ovation guitar. It's, it's a gorgeous instrument. It's back when ovation really made instruments instead of importing them from Indonesia and China. Um, when it was made, the, the soundboard on the top was hundred year old German spruce. And of course, you know, the leaf overlay on the holes that uh, that's one of the multiple hole guitars. Yeah, but that was there was those were made initially famous by Glenn Campbell. Absolutely, I bought my first one because Glenn Campbell played it, um, and at the time they had one of the best uh, pickups that you could get in an acoustic guitar. Mm -hmm. And then when I got out of college, I started actually playing professionally, and I had the Shore Vocal Master still, and I had two Ovation guitars, and the one thing I learned about Ovation guitars was that you could, as long as they were in the case, you could literally drop kick them from job to job, pull them out, and know they were going to work. <laughs> and the Shore Vocal Master, I actually saw another act, um, and we were playing at a college, and it was in a basement, and at the top, he let go of the Shure Vocal Master head, and it went down an extra long flight of concrete stairs end over end. Ooh. Picked it up, a couple knobs fell off, he put them back in, walked in and plugged it in, tried it out, and played it for the night. <laughs> really? <laughs> oh, those things. They're like, they're, like, they're like old Hondas. You have to beat them to death with a stick if you're going to kill them. Yeah, see, we were we were so careful with ours, so I I wouldn't. But I, gosh, if if you had not told the rest of the story, I would have thought, well, the fellow played acoustically that night. No, no, he plugged it in; it worked fine. Wow. <clears throat> and I said, you don't get to carry my vocal master. <laughs> <laughs> now, do you remember what you used for microphones back then? I used a, um, actually it was a lower model of a Shure. Um, was it a PE 58 or a PG 58? Yeah, it may've been, might've been a PG 58. It wasn't the SM 58 that everybody was, that was the standard. Right. Uh, and I also had, um, back in those days I had an AKG. And uh, I left it on stage one night where I had multiple nights in a row and somebody, somebody uh, lifted my microphone. So then I was back to the shores. 
but they always work. And again, um, just like the Ovation and the Shore Vocal Master, the Shore mics were the best for road work because you could do stunts with them and they'd slip out of your hand and bang up against a concrete wall and you pick it up, start singing. Absolutely. Um, You know, you can, you can use it to uh, build the stage and then put it in the stand (laughs) and sing through it. (laughs) No, I have seen many a Shure SM58 with the, the, the screen on top that's no longer circular. Oh yeah, flat flat spots on the screen from dropping multiple mm-hmm. flat spots on yep. the screen from dropping it, and of course, none of my equipment ever looked like that. Same as yours. Um, cases cases for everything and handle with care. Yep. Now, when did you? Because when I saw you at the coffee table, you were just starting to get back into performing, if I recall. Or had you been playing the whole time? Um, I played, when I got out of college, uh, I ventured into real estate, which I think is something you did know about me. Yes. Um, but I was always playing on the side. And then I found out I was making more money playing music than mm-hmm. I was selling real estate. And I went into it uh, full time and from about... Oh, I would say from about 78 to 80, between 83 and 84, Mm -hmm. that was literally all I did was um, play music. And um, 84, I picked up a job in the computer industry and I said, you know, it's time I really gave this a shot and because up until about 89, I was almost working a full-time music schedule and working a full-time job and uh, working that full-time job and then going out and playing at night and then getting up the next morning to go down and work a full-time job. That became, I decided it was time to give the job a, a fair shot. And in 89, I put down my guitar and I didn't pick it up for three years. Mm-hmm. For three years? For three years. And then in uh, 92 or 93, somewhere around then, I was called to do a private event by my former sister-in-law. And I said, I don't do that anymore. I haven't touched a guitar literally in three or four years. And you would have to know my former sister-in-law to find out that um, when she wants you to do something, (laughs) she she does not take no for an answer. And after about the uh, 10th call, (laughs) she was a special education teacher. She wanted me to come in and play for her children. She said they just loved music, and they did. So I, uh, that's when I picked it up again and I played for them and that went over so well. I said, hmm, you remember Sig's Hideaway? Yeah, oh yes. Mm-hmm. Then I went into Sig. <laughs> and I started to, to become a regular player out at Sig's. And up until you saw me, 
at the uh, coffee table. Everything I did was um, sort of hither and yon. I I might play three or four jobs, and then I might not play for six months, other than at the house. Well, the computer business kind of took off for you, didn't it? Uh, yeah, several times. Took off, crashed, burned, took off, <laughs> crashed, burned. Now, because you're no longer in the computer business. Oh, I'm uh, I'm I'm what they call retired now. Yeah. Now, um, do you miss the computer business? I'm just curious. Uh, I miss what the computer business used to be. Yeah. Because when I got into the computer business, it was it was literally the wild west. Mm-hmm. Um, there were no. We were coming out of mainframes and into desktops, and in the desktop world, there were no rules. Yeah. Everybody was uh, used to time sharing on uh, on a larger machine, anything from one of the larger decks on up to the IBM mainframes. And all of a sudden, the buzzword in the industry was distributed processing. Where you know everything's done at the, all your computing power is at the desktop level, and you didn't have to share the computing power somewhere else. And then it got into networks. Now we're all back into almost central processing again because now it's one computer that you set up, you know, thirty servers on, mm-hmm. and it's still distributed processing, but it's uh, it's a hybrid of that model now. When I grew up in it, it was it was kind of like the Wild West. There were no rules. Everybody was uh, all of the manufacturers were jockeying for the lead position. HP was a minor player at the time in the desktop side because their main business was uh, mini computers with like the HP 3000. And of course, um, Compaq is the one who came out as the main IBM competitor. Gosh, I could, you, are they even around I anymore? Wax, yeah, I could wax philosophic on that for a long time because I actually, everybody looks at it as history now. Well, you don't look at it as history when you're living through it. <laughs> no, that is uh, absolutely true. No, actually, the Compaq is um, Compaq was eventually acquired by HP, and 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 here's a short computer industry story. I was a software vendor. And my customer was um, Digital Equipment Corporation, Mm -hmm. which had one of the largest service organizations in the country. And I sold them one of the tools that they used everywhere. And uh, then Compaq came in, which was a much smaller company, but they positioned themselves and they bought DEC. And they, they bought them... You know, I wish I could turn this off, but I can't. <laughs> it's just going to keep doing that, and that, it's that, all junk calls. That's okay. Um, they uh, were acquired by Compaq, which was actually a smaller company, but Compaq acquired them for their service organization. They had 6,000 employees in their service organization globally. Um, in fact, that 6,000 number may have been just the U.S. And... Uh, 
Oh, they're so worried about my Apple devices that they know nothing about. <laughs> um, I know what I'm going to do. I'm going to put these things under a pile of blankets. <laughs> there you go. And we're going to call that done. Um, but yeah, they and eventually, so the, the guy working at uh, at uh, Deck at the time said, "Oh, I don't want to work for a company like like um, Digital." Says, uh, or I don't want to work for. He said, "I like working for Digital. I don't want to work for a little computer company." He says, um, "He went to work for HP." <laughs> a number of years later, HP ended up buying Compaq. Yeah. <laughs> I called him up. I said, how about that? Not wanting to work for a compact light company. Now, did you told told me where to go? Yeah. Now, did your musical experience as a younger person help you or hinder you or made no difference at all with your computer? I was in sales. It helped tremendously. Yeah. Because I ended up um, for the software company I was working for. Uh, I ended up actually being their show representation at trade shows across the country and, and eventually worked my way to the point where I was also um, keynote speaker at these places. But by that time, I had already been used to being in front of audiences. And everybody else at the company was, was like, we don't want to do that because you, you know what uh, always hits the top three of things that people fear the most. Yep public speaking. Yep. And I didn't have a problem with that. So I ended up in that position. So I'd say that uh, my experience as a musician, it's figuring out how music hangs together. It was logical the way computers work to me, but I was never a technician. Mm hmm. Um, having to do the major presentations in front of large audience, large critical audiences, um, that actually was fun for me. Yeah. Now, going back to the Man of a Thousand Songs, who you are, the uh, how many songs, make a guess, because I'm sure you don't have an exact number, but how many songs have you had in your catalog? Maybe you couldn't do them you know, from memory, but you had them in your book that you could pull upon when you had your book or books with you when you went out to play at your heyday, when you had the most songs you could recall. I probably had four or 500. Yeah, which to me is thousands. Um, to most people, it's it's thousands, and I would say half of them I could play without without the music. Um, now I... Now I have trouble saying hello without cue <laughs> Now, Now, how did you go about choosing the songs, or was it based on what you'd get requests for that you didn't know, and you'd say, okay, I have to learn that one? Now, you and I both know that that's how we all learned a lot of songs. Mm-hmm. In fact, I, I was... Uh, the house entertainer at the Golden Bull down at Gaithersburg for a long, too long a time. (laughs) (laughs) And that was, uh, depending on the season, was five or six nights a week. That's a lot of gigs, especially Uh, in the same same spot. Actually, where I, uh, when I was playing full time for 
three years, even moving among places, I would say I worked between 45 and 50 weeks a year, five to six nights a week for about four years. And I would imagine those were four-hour nights, because I remember playing in the, the restaurant lounges and some of the bars, and it wasn't a 9 to 12 or a 8 to 11. It was usually 8 to 12 or 8 to 1 sometimes. Uh, actually, it was either 8 to 12 or 9 to 1. Mm-hmm. This down at the Bull, it was 8 to 12, 9 to 1 on weekends, 8 to 12 on weeknights. And then you would, they had to clear the bar by 2. So on a weeknight, um, on more than one occasion, I had somebody say, you know, we're not finished listening yet. And they'd delve into their wallets. And I would go ask permission from the manager. And on a 8 o'clock night, I'd play till 1. And the audience paid me. Mm-hmm. Which, it, it, sometimes when the tips are good, you're being paid more from tips than you are from the house. When Kenny Rogers' song, The Gambler, was possible, mm-hmm. there was a floating poker game going on in Gaithersburg. And two guys walked in after one of those poker games, and one of them was, had the nickname Lucky, and he'd walk up and he dropped a $20 bill. And he says, play the gambler and don't and dedicate it to, I don't even remember the guy's name. And as I'm playing it, dedicating it to him, the guy's just shaking his head. And look, he's just laughing. And about 10 minutes later, he walks up, drops another 20 on there and says, do it again. Mm. Now, keep in mind, this is 79, yep. 80. And I said, yes, sir. Well, about the fifth time I'm playing it, one of the waitresses walked up to me and she said, what are you doing playing that song? You're driving me crazy. And I looked her in the eye and I looked at the table with a stack of $20 bills there. (laughs) And she looked at me and she said, really? And I nodded yes. And she said, well, what are you listening to me for? Play. Yeah. Uh, Yeah. Any good server would understand tips. Oh, yeah, she did. Um. But those were the fun days. People said, do you rehearse? I said, yeah, four nights a week, uh, five nights a week, four hours a night. Yeah. But as far as now, as far as um, learning new songs, I would always buy a uh, tape deck for my car that had an auto track repeat. Oh, so you just loop. So it would get, it would sense the end of the song and it would rewind, rewind to the beginning of that song and play it over again. Mm-hmm. And sometimes the first time I played a song was meant that I had listened to it for long enough that I was able to uh, go ahead and play it mm-hmm. with no rehearsal. Now that brings up a question. Did you understand chord structures and keys and where your vocal range was to be able to listen to a song that many times and then just figure, okay, probably in the key of C and then be able to play it? Or did you have to down purchase the sheet music or figure it out on guitar? I rarely bought a piece of sheet music and usually by the second or third time I heard it, I 
knew pretty much where the key was. Mm-hmm. I might have to play with it once or twice. But you and I, you and I have played together. You know that I transpose in my head. You do very quickly. Um, and <laughs> I know because you've turned to me and said, "What key are we in?" Yeah. Uh, <laughs> and um, if it was a little too high, I would just on the fly drop it a step. But I, I, I learned something. Here's here's a little trick for the novice guitarists who can't read music and haven't taken any lessons. I did buy a music book when I was about 13. And it was called 4,400 Guitar Chords. It's <laughs> a lot. Yeah. And uh, it had, you know, those little peel and stick toys that uh, kids buy with their doll. They put the dolls and they can pull, peel the clothes off of a sticker and put it on the doll. This one came with some peel and stick dots. And it had the 12 notes of the guitar neck. E, F, F sharp slash G flat, G, G sharp slash A flat, A, B flat, B, C, D flat, D, E flat, E. And you would put it on the guitar neck that you could see. So I knew where what every note was on the neck. And then I realized one day that if I'm playing in G and it wants me to play to A, I looked at the neck and I said, oh, that's up two frets. And then I realized that what I had to do was take every chord that I was playing and move it up two frets. So that a G became an A, a C became a D, and a D became an E. Thus using a capo. No, there's no capo. I'm just looking at the neck and I said, it's got to go up two. And I'd look at the chord that I was supposed to be and look at what the note was. And pretty soon I had it memorized. Mm-hmm. So do you prefer to play without a capo in today's world, or do you use a capo often? I use a capo these days for the arrangement. Um, I don't need a capo. I can actually, I can actually play in E flat without a capo. Mm-hmm. Wow. Which is, which is every guitarist's worst nightmare. But if you watch the Beatles, they used it can, a lot. You can you can they'll they'll play on E flat and they just do it naturally. They never use capos. So when people ask me about capos, I used to tell them I grew my own. <laughs> uh, but there are things, and and I know you use multiple capos and you use partial capos and. Um, because when you're using the partial capos, there's just things you can do in the arrangement in one key that you can't do in another. Yeah, it gives you some drone strings. It really does. And it it just or picking patterns. Right. I can use this picking pattern in this key in on this fret that I can't use if I play it. I can do it if I do it in C with a capo on the second fret. I can do things I can't do in D playing it open. Right. It took me a lot of years 
to, to figure out the usefulness of a capo. And that's what the usefulness of a capo is for me is sometimes the guitar arrangement is better. The chord pattern is works better with the song. Mm -hmm. So that's why I use a capo. Now, what are your, the top three songs that you enjoy playing? Oh God, narrow it down. Uh, <laughs> and it could be three of, of the, 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 your favorite 10. It doesn't have to be the, the one, two, and three. The, what, in other words, the songs that when you pick the guitar up, you know, you're walking through the living room and the guitar is sitting there, you pick it up. What's the first song you play? Um, it, it depends on the mood I'm in. If I'm looking for something up tempo, um, you know, I just learned long, cool woman in a black dress, mm -hmm. uh, about five or six years ago, but uh, the part to that is so neat that uh, I have a tendency to, um, if, I'm, if I'm playing a little up tempo and just warming up, I'll probably warm up with that. Mm -hmm. uh, or some of Creedence Clearwater's stuff. Um, but if you know, I do a lot of balance. Yes. And uh, Don McLean's uh, Vincent. Mm hmm. Which you don't hear many people do, but you do do it. Yeah, and I have been doing it almost since it came out in 73-ish. Yep. After. It was on his American Pie album. I would imagine that when you sing Vincent, it's better than when he does it now. Um, I don't know that that's totally a matter of opinion. <laughs> well, I've seen a few YouTubes and I'm not taking anything away from his, his, um, greatness. Cause he's a very popular and has written some beautiful songs, but like so many performers, Paul Simon is a good example. When he plays live songs that he wrote and performed back in the 1960s, you can identify the song, but it is a totally different song than what the way he re played it back when we listened to the albums. That's true. Even when he and, he and Garfunkel get together, mm -hmm. um, uh, a lot of their they've got they've got at least three identifiable different versions of um, of Sounds of Silence mm -hmm. and Homeward Bound. Yep. Uh, Whereas, so, you, whereas you do so, Vincent yeah, the same way every time, basically. Uh, actually, I've changed my arrangement of Vincent in recent times. And it's actually closer now to the original guitar part than it was. I used to use a meld of two of his tunes um, that, uh, that went could overlay nicely over one another. Mm -hmm. And I like the riff from one, but I like the, um, I like the riff from one, but I like the, uh, some of the other parts of the other one. And I just finally went ahead and did the true arrangement of Vincent. And of course, the one you're looking for is probably, yes, one of my favorites to play around with is White Port. Yep. Oh, my gosh. It's, uh, 
It is definitely, since I've been doing open mics or performing in and around the greater Frederick, Maryland area, because I produced the show in Frederick, Maryland, the that is in the top 10 of the songs, and I've heard thousands of songs sung by you know, a myriad of, of performers. But your singing of that song is probably in the top 10, might even be in the top five. Well, thank you. That's a song that was written by um, a gentleman named, and, and it's, it's such a plain Jane name as, as Mark Smith. And uh, he did a short stint as the rhythm guitarist for Don Bird and the Blackbirds. <laughs> <laughs> you remember them? I do not. You remember the song. Okay. They were a one-hit wonder. All right. Walking in rhythm. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Don Bird and the Blackbirds. And uh, he actually used to open for Jerry Jeff Walker whenever Jerry Jeff Walker came to town because the two of them became friends, which was, he said it was always kind of awkward because in, in a lot of ways their styles crossed. Mm-hmm. Don't usually have someone who um, is of such a close style open for you. But as far as I know, the only three people who ever did the song White Port were uh, the guy who wrote it, me, and Jerry Jeff Walker learned it. Oh, he did. I don't know how often he performed it, but he learned it. Now, how it's just, did... a great, just a great, well-written song. Oh, it's a terrific song. Now, how did you come about, how did you, did you know him or how did you get, go about getting the song and being able to, uh, Kismet. Okay. It, it was, it was Kismet. Um, I was playing at the, uh, Holiday Inn on Wisconsin Avenue, uh, right across from and down a little bit from the Bethesda Naval Center, mm-hmm. Bethesda Naval Hospital. And before they became a popular discotheque in the um, 80s, they used to run solo acts, solos and duos in the lounge downstairs. And I was playing in there one night and this guy comes walking in and he's sitting back and he's just he's just watching. And I know he's watching my hands, the way guitarists watch other guitarists hands. Mm -hmm. And we got to talking afterwards and I said, do you play? And he said, yeah. And he says, uh, ovations are kind of neat guitars. By this time, he had he was buying all custom-made guitars. Um, <laughs> and I handed him my ovation, and he made me want to sit on my hands. <laughs> Tremendous guitarist. And then I found out that we were born within 24 hours of one another in the same hospital in Baltimore. Really? Really. And I don't know if you're familiar with the high school rivalry in Washington, D.C., the St. John's Gonzaga rivalry. No. Um, it's the longest standing high school rivalry in the country. Uh, it used to be a real big event. Gonzaga would go all over D.C. and decorate things. And, you know, the St. John's game was their, was their big um, – that was the – big game of the season for them because of how old the rivalry was. He went to Gonzaga. I went to St. John's. He played the CYO 
coffee house circuit, same as I did, we never ran into one another. He actually made the cover of, I think it was Time Magazine for um, Practical Joke of the Year. Really? In his senior year, he orchestrated uh, a group of them to go out with giant sheets of mylar. And until the guards caught them, they ran out and dropped purple mylar over the spotlights on the Washington Monument. Ah. And they turned the Washington Monument purple. (laughs) In today's world, they'd be shot. Long enough to snap the picture because it was it was one of their stunts stunts but <laughs> and he was the uh, perpetrator of that stunt the, the purple perpetrator the purple perpetrator yeah but he wrote uh, he he's got a, a book of music that's that's really incredible and um, he doesn't play anymore you know, I'll catch up to him online every once in a while, and we'll chit-chat for a while. And um, He saw that somebody had posted me doing his song, White Port, and made a point of getting back to me saying that I had his guitar part down perfectly. Oh, well, good. That, that was a very high compliment. He's an amazing guitar player. Now, does he live in the area here? Um, I think he lives in northern virginia somewhere now did he teach you the song or did you you got to hear it and then learned it no 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 he taught it to me we had a short period of time where musically we hung out together and it was primarily me learning from him Mm -hmm. and uh and um he he could hit chords that were um, what what you or I would consider to be an accent chord. Mm -hmm. Uh, Just something that you would hit in passing. Yeah. He does that with a five, with a five fret span. He's got hands like Jim Croce, probably they're mitts. I mean, they're just huge. Um, His, they're not, they're not huge, but his fingers are long and slender. Mm Mm-hmm. And he he just in passing and he would hit it just clean as can be. I do a lot of that, but it's it doesn't come out nearly as clean as <laughs> <laughs> No, this is getting off the, the subject of you, but do you know why he no longer plays? Was it something he just got burned out, or do you have a health condition that doesn't allow allow him to play or No, I think he said, you know, I've had enough of this for a while. Mm-hmm. He may get back into it. He may not. Uh, you know, he he's one of those uh, very cerebral type individuals who uh, spent much of his music career in a um, subdued, altered state of mind. Uh, I re- remember my, a lot of my buddies being in that state of mind. Yeah, 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 yeah. In a smoke-filled room. Yep. One, um, one whole uh, wing of the dormitory my last two years of college. You used to have to <laughs> put your hand like a shark's fin in front of your nose to walk through the hallway. Yeah, well, and and 
to to maintain the same pace yes yeah <laughs> that is true we we might have gone down the stairwell slower than we went up okay i gotcha yeah yeah or or go to the grocery store and as you're wandering around the grocery store end up paying for an empty bag of potato chips yep yeah yeah those so, days so when you play out um, like you have the Frederick Coffee Company, you know, Beans of the Belfry, all the local haunts, and then others. But in today's performance, is there a song you tend to sing first? It's kind of like your warm-up song. You're most comfortable with it. It kind of gives the audience a, 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 an idea of what you do, or does it change? It changes. Does it? It changes. The, when I was working with Dan, we had an opening song. What was because that? Because it kind of set the tone. We would normally play Mrs. Robinson. Mm -hmm. And he's referring to Dan Mack, who's a wonderful guitar player out of the, uh, you know, the Beltway region, I would say. Probably Germantown. Yeah. He's he's from down in Germantown. And Dan and I have known each other for, um, let's leave it at 40 years. Mm -hmm. Uh, Probably a little longer than that, but let's leave it at 40 years. Um, yeah, and, and we would start with that because it starts out a bit up tempo. Mm-hmm. Yep. Um, it starts out the guitar parts pretty well mimic what went on on the record, and it introduces people right off the bat to the tight two-part harmony that we had. Yeah. So. That was that was normally just a, a good song to get started out with and lift people up with. And, but when I'm doing it by myself, um, I usually talk to a few people as I'm setting up and try to read the audience. And then I get up there and I go, I have no idea. And I pick one at random. <laughs> <laughs> Why, do you have a song you start with? I did for many years, but uh, not so much anymore. Um, I, and there was a reason why I started with that song was because it was easy for me to sing. There was no way I was going to forget it. And it just somehow it started getting pushed farther and farther back and then kind of disappeared for a while. Now I bring it back sometimes, although it's one of my favorite songs to perform. I just, for some reason, it's just on one of the, one of the the cards back in the, the brain rather than towards the front. But, uh, yeah, I do what you do. It's 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 sort of like I don't think about it, and I get up to the mic and I talk to the few people, and I just start to play something. Yeah, and um, I've been out to to listen to you a couple of times recently uh, during these COVID times. Uh, well, as you know, I've only played four gigs this year. But I'm glad you got back out to do it, and I understand why you had not been playing. But I'm so glad you got the opportunity because. I know how much I enjoy performing and I know how much you enjoy performing. So I'm so happy that one, we had some outdoor performances that you could actually perform at and that you got to do it. Yeah, I am too. And I, I thank you for calling on me when, (laughs) when you needed a sub. (laughs) I did need a sub. Thank you very much. And you're always Uh, the first person I call. So, um, so, but in, in coming out and listening to you recently, I noticed that uh, you've pulled a lot of songs from what I'm going to assume were past repertoires. Some of them were, and some of them were ones that, well, yes, I did back in the 70s, like the Engelbert Humperdinck song. 
I yeah, that one shocked me. I hadn't done that in probably 1978 was the last time I sang that one. And, but there were people in the audience who were my age or older, many of them women. And I thought, you know what? I bet they really liked Engelbert Humperdinck back then. And of course that was his big song. And so, and I had sung it. So I, I, and I was able to relearn it fairly easily. And now it's one of the first songs I sing at home when I get the guitar out, just because I like it. It's, 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 he wasn't necessarily a crooner, but close. He was on, uh, he was on Tom Jones show one time. And it was when you realized how close his voice and Tom Jones voices really were. They, they were. Tom Jones just had more of the power that was his personality too. But yes, you're absolutely right. They're very similar. Um, well, actually, they both had the power because uh, they did a stint where uh, they did a stunt um, where Tom Jones walked out and he was singing one of Tom Jones's songs and he felt it and he had the power like Tom Jones. Wow. And Tom Jones turned around and went, yeah, and started singing. So I'll sing. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, or was uh, it winter world, winter world of love. I think. That's yeah. It. So what, what is the, and I, I know that as the weather gets colder, there are going to be fewer and fewer opportunities for musicians, not just acoustic musicians, but all musicians to perform because it seems like the number of virus cases is going up as the weather cools. The, we're hoping that by springtime we'll be able to get back outside and maybe by then things will open up so that we can get music back inside, if only on a limited basis, but hopefully full time sometime in the future. But what does the future hold for you or what would you like it to hold for you performance wise? Well, in the immediate future, as long as you've gone there, (laughs) (laughs) Um, they're going to be running a, a series as long as they can in the cold weather over at the Warman's mill yep village center yep village center and i was talking to jasmine about that and she said well they're looking for somebody who uh knows traditional christmas songs and a lot of the traditional carols because of the um the apartments are surrounding it are uh all senior citizens Mm -hmm. they want the old christmas carols and i said that would be me yep and she said, what day would you like to play? And I said, I'll take early in the month. So on uh, Saturday, December 5th, I'll be doing an afternoon out there. And they're going to be having music out there every Saturday, weather permitting. Now, what time is that performance? I believe it's four to six. Okay. Okay. It might be, might be two to four. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm looking for my phone, but I don't have it. It's in the, uh, it's on my calendar. Well, that's okay. The fact that you're going to be performing at Warman's Mill Village Center in Frederick, um, right off of 26 or 15, depending on which way you go. Um, but December 5th in the afternoon, Michael Scherf's going to be performing traditional Christmas songs, among other things, I'm sure. But um, I will look forward to hopefully I can get over there and do that. But we're going to have to end the show now because we're running out of time. But, Michael, thank you so much for joining me today. 
Well, it was a lot of fun, except for the uh, the interrupting phone calls. <laughs> well, at least we know you're still popular. <laughs> yeah, only with the telemarketers. <laughs> <laughs> well, tell and tell Julie I said hello, and uh, we send her the best as always. And I hope to get to see you folks sometime soon. We'll just keep our fingers crossed that the virus gets tired and goes away. Same here. Um, tell Carol I said hi, and, and, and I hope you enjoyed that picture I shot of her for you. Yes, sir, I do. Yep. So, anyway, um, thanks for this opportunity, and uh, I'm sure we'll be talking again soon. Sounds good, Mike. Thanks so much. All righty. All right. Bye-bye. Bye-bye now. That was Michael Scherf, and delightful fellow, very, very good, excellent, actually, performer, guitar player, singer. He is a crooner. Um, I've seen him perform at the Frederick Coffee Company before, where he's doing his normal kind of singing and shtick in between, and then it started to rain and rain hard, so people couldn't go anywhere because it rained too hard to go out to get in the car. A few people strolled in, and he did about a half an hour of songs where every song had something to do with rain, and he did it extemporaneously. In other words, he just kept pulling them out, pulling them out, pulling them out. He had not planned to do that, so it was a whole lot of fun. But thank you so much for listening, and we're going to finish the show with some more bumper music, and we'll catch you next time. The Wispy Mop Music Acoustic Radio Podcast Series is produced by Todd C. Walker at the Wispy Mop Music Studio in Frederick, Maryland. All the music on the podcast is played by permission from the artist or, like this music, by permission, since it's royalty-free, by Jason Shaw from Audionautics.com. If you're enjoying the series, please feel free to share the link, wispymopmusic.podbean.com. And Podbean is spelled P-O-D-B-E-A-N. Or you can find the show on either iTunes or Apple Podcasts. Thanks again for listening.